So, one of the things that's interesting about prayer, and as I was preparing this sermon, is is that we do understand that there are often a number of, and, and various points in Scripture, um, rebukes or corrections on how we pray. And it is actually possible, um, in a category of thinking, I want to be careful how I talk here, <laughs> in a category of thinking, it's possible, quite possible, to pray wrong. And so I don't know how you pray or what you've been doing, but just be aware you might not be doing it right. And so one of the things that we have to learn here and understand is that God has this relationship with us and there's a way that we interact with God in a way that we have, uh, that he's given us and taught us and given us examples of, of how to relate to him and how to pray to him um, with the most possible benefit to us and the most possible opportunity for us to grow in our relationship with him. For example, in James 4.3, uh, James 4.13, uh, you have James saying something like this. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so that, that translates into our prayer life because sometimes we think we're going to ask God to bless what we're doing and, and that we're going to tell God, these are the things that are going on in my life, Lord. I want you to come in and bless those things. And James here is quite plainly saying that's not how you talk to God. That's not how you order your life. It's not what you will will first, but what God will will. And if we don't pray in that way, then we can find ourselves praying ourselves actually outside of, God will, outside of God's will. Or, for example, the Apostle Paul, he, he prayed three times for the thorn to be removed from his flesh, this illness that he had. Three times he prayed until God finally said, Paul, stop, I'm not going to do that, okay? Like, you can keep praying that. I'm going to keep not doing it. Um, you know, Jeremiah, same way. Jeremiah, prophet broken for his people Israel who had wandered far from God, praying for them to turn back to God and to look and to see and to hear God and, 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 and God. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. God tells Jeremiah, don't pray for my people. It's like, stop doing that because this is not the time that I'm going to save them. So you're praying, but I'm not listening to that prayer. And so we can actually pray outside of God's will. And as we've been going through the study, We've been learning that God is at work around us, and we need to be looking and seeing what God is doing and what his will is. And so we have to be careful a little bit how we pray. And so we can find ourselves in our prayer in a state sometimes even of outright sin, not not just not being aware of what God is doing and what it would be beneficial for us to be joining him in and praying for, but, but actually praying in a way that's contradictory to God. James, again, um, cause he has such great bedside manner, um, you know, is a good example. In James 4.3, he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Right? He's saying this is, this is why your prayers aren't being answered. Because you're asking for all the wrong reasons. You're not even asking something that God could deliver. So in this series, we're learning to hear God speak and know his will. So how do we pray properly to that end? And thankfully, God has not left us alone in this department at all. He's given us incredible help. He's given us instruction. He's given us example. And he's even given us divine assistance in our prayer. So first of all, I'm just looking at Jesus' instruction. And we have, of course, the Lord's Prayer as a template of proper prayer. And, in, and it does include requests to God, right? To, to make known our needs that God desires to meet. He wants to give us the desires of our heart. He wants us to bring his, 
our petitions to him, just even as Gord said, God desires us to put bring our burdens to him. It's not about that we never pray for ourselves at all. He wants in this model prayer that Jesus tells us to give us our daily bread, to supply our immediate needs for today. Lead us not into temptation. Preserve my sanctification by your power, by your power, God. Lead me not into temptation. Forgive my sin. These things that are in this model prayer are are about us. They're about what we need. But although notice also that they reflect our dependency on God and reveal his nature to us. It's that God supplies our daily bread. It's that God leads. It's that God preserves. It's that God forgives. So they are about us, but they also, even in that act of bringing our petitions to him, reflect on the nature of God's initiative. But let, I just want to set that aside for just the beginning, because those, those parts of our prayer are important, and they are there in the model that Jesus gives us. But let's just look at the beginning of the prayer to see the context in which our needs come to God. How does the prayer begin? You, you all know it. Imagine. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You see how it starts. Jesus teaches his disciples this. In prayer, you begin with worship and the will of God. And this is the context of our prayers. This is the context of what we come to God with. We don't come to God saying, do this and deliver that and then I will worship. Or do and deliver for me and work and, and work your will into my plans. Very simply, in this model prayer that Jesus gives us, the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, depending which way you want to look at it, we simply see here that in this instruction, it's the worship and the will of God that's the primary context for any requests. And we can also note that those requests are in line with the knowledge that we have of God and his nature. He wants to provide. He wants to forgive. He wants to lead us in sanctification, right? So those requests are in line with our knowledge of God and his nature. And it has to be this way. Our prayers have to exist within the context of God's will and his worship and not our own. Because if our prayers were not in the context, first and foremost, of God's will, then there would be two problems. First of all, God would not be good. And secondly, we would be in a contest of wills with the one who we claim is our Lord. You see that? If if our prayers were somehow outside of the context of God's will, if it could be prayed any other way, we would have two big problems. The first one being that God would not be a good God. If we pray outside the will of God, he's quite right not to grant our prayers. Because this is why. God's will is for our good. right? God does not wish us evil. There's nothing in God's will that means harm for his people. And so if he granted any requests of ours that were outside of his will, then he would be granting something that would harm us. And so even though we may be asking sincerely for what we think is good, it would be evil of God to give us the wrong thing that we're asking for. I mean, what father would spitefully harm his own child by giving him what he asked for, knowing it would harm him? And we see this nature of God in Luke 11, 11 to 13. Right after the the example of the prayer, Jesus goes on to sort of open the door on this reality. He says, which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So you see what what he's saying there. He's saying, God the Father is good. He's not going to do something that's harmful. And so you can just... 
consider, with your permission, let's just consider that same precept that of Jesus has just taught here in light of an improper request. What father of his son, if his son asked for a scorpion, would actually give it to him? What father, if his son asked for a snake, would say, okay, you asked for it, here's the snake? No father would do that, right? Even us as earthly fathers would not do that. And if wicked earthly fathers wouldn't do that, how much more good is God going to do with our requests, even when we ask improperly? Our children often make improper requests, right? And I'll pick on Isaac again because he's here, and he's my son. But Isaac would sometimes, in good faith, sincerely ask for something or to do something that he felt would be beneficial to him. Okay, so he really thought he was asking me for something good. But I could see his mistake, Right? As the older, wiser, gracious, good, (laughs) generous father that I am, I could see the mistake that my foolish son was making. And so I didn't give him what he asked for. Instead, I gave him what he needed. And sometimes that was to his frustration or even anger. But even earthly fathers at times are sometimes wise enough and good enough not to grant harmful requests. And now at other times, our children will do things without asking us or in spite of our instruction and in spite of our will, our children will go off and do whatever they want anyway. And we may then even allow them to suffer the consequences of their own willfulness. That's true. We, we sometimes let our children, seeing them do something, let them suffer the consequences of their behavior. And God does that too. But even we earthly fathers do not spite them when they ask for help and sincerity, even if it's wrong. And so we see that God cannot answer prayers that are apart from his will without being evil. And God is not evil, he's good. And so he will only answer prayers that are in his will and in his nature. And so when we pray, we need to understand that we, need, we are praying everything within the context of God's will. And the second problem that we have is if we don't pray according to God's will, then we will always be in a contest of wills against God because somebody's will has to prevail. God, who we claim as our Lord. And what disciple or servant of a master can desire to be in conflict with that master? So, of course, when we go to pray to our Lord and to our master, to God who has good in store for us, we do not want to be in a contest of wills. Right? Why would we want that? We, why would we, what hope would we have in that contest of wills against God? I mean, to pick on Isaac just a little bit more, like many of your children, I'm sure, early on discovered that on almost every topic, Isaac discovered my will was immovable. And I concede here that I was not always right, okay, because I am an earthly father. And I know that I made mistakes where I put my foot down and I dug in and I said, my will will prevail. I was not always right. But God is always right. But compare a six- or eight-year-old boy to a father who is able to assign bedtimes, who has control of the TV and the Xbox, who puts food on the table, who owns the bed, owns the TV, owns the Xbox, (laughs) owns the food, right? Isaac's will was not going to prevail against my will. It was not going to happen. That contest was not a contest of wills that Isaac would win. But that contest is the contest multiplied by infinity that we set ourselves up with against the God of the universe. And so if you go into prayer believing your will is going to prevail over the will of God, why would you want that and what hope do you have of it succeeding, right? 
Is that a contest that we plan on winning? Is that a contest that we even want? No, because as disciples, as servants of Christ, we want our will to follow that of our master. And so there's two big problems right there if we think that we can pray outside of God's will or that prayer somehow exists outside of any other context than God's will. And so we see that in prayer we're meant to know and do the will of God. In prayer we must know the will of God. Prayer by its very nature is a matter of wills. Whose will will prevail? God will not answer prayers outside of his will, and that would be evil. And our will, thankfully, can't prevail against God's. And so we know then that this is the context of all prayer. It has to be according to God's will. So then how do you do this, okay? How do we get our prayers in line with God's will? How do we pray according to God's will? It's not just the words we say. Jesus told us the kinds of words we should use. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We understand the words, but the words aren't a magic formula. Words have to communicate actual true motives of our heart. How do we get our heart and our head and our knowledge in line with God and his will? How do we set ourselves and get ourselves in a stance to pray in God's will. And for this part, God has given us more than just instruction, but a helper. Because we're fallen and because we do not know how to pray, we need an intercessor. And and last week we saw that Jesus left us the Holy Spirit as a counselor who would lead us in all truth and would bring to mind his word. And he said that those who love me obey my commands, and he's given us his commands and his word, and the Holy Spirit interprets that word for us. He reminds us of it. He opens our eyes to the word. He gives us a love for the word. And so we have the Holy Spirit called the Spirit of Truth who teaches us the Word of God and causes us to remember. But that is not all. The Holy Spirit also joins us as a helper in knowing the mind and the will of God and to be a direct intercessory in our prayers. In the Garden of Gethsemane, which we will get to, because it is Palm Sunday and we've got to talk about Holy Week a little bit at least, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying with his disciples at the point of his greatest crisis. The Son of Man says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's the root of the problem. That's why we need the Holy Spirit, because as we go into our prayers, the spirit might be willing, our smallest spirit might be willing, but our flesh is weak. And so we need capital S spirit to help us. The root of the problem is our weakness, but it's also part of the solution. We are weak. As Jesus is looking at his disciples asleep less than an hour after he had asked them to be praying for him, when he saw the crowds of people oppressed by sickness and violence, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 9.36 When he looked over the city of Jerusalem at his people, he saw them as baby chicks that needed protection under his wings in Matthew 23.37. And these are examples of our weakness. We're like the disciples where you're often asleep when we start to pray. That's me anyway, right? You know, depending on the time of day that you choose to pray. You start praying and then you realize you just woke up. Um, you know, or, or we are like sheep and going astray, or we are like baby chicks that need protection. Jesus over and over and over again says, we are not as strong as we think we are. We are weak. We are vulnerable. We do need help. But the good news is, is that the Spirit is our help in prayer. Our spirit is willing. Our Jesus-treasuring, obedience-desiring spirits want the will of God, but our flesh is weak. And so we are only meant to pray with God's Spirit, helping our spirit. That's how we're meant to pray. Romans 8, 26-27 reads, 
And this is Paul following Romans 7. And we know Romans 7 is Paul talking about, the Apostle Paul talking about the weakness of his own flesh, right? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I desire to do, or the things I don't want to do, I do do. Paul, Romans 7, is just talking about the weakness of his own flesh. But then, hallelujah, Romans 8, he now talks about the victory that we have, not in our flesh, but in the Spirit. And part of that victory is in prayer. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. There it is. We're weak. Can't deny it. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, that's God, who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Right, so this is what's happening in our prayer as saints. This is what's happening in our prayer as disciples. Is that we have the Holy Spirit who aids our spirit. As willing as it is, our flesh is weak. So remember I said that weakness is the root of our problem, but it's also our solution because it's in our weakness that God proves strong. And notice how Paul phrases it. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. He does not say that the Spirit comes along and makes us strong. The Spirit doesn't remove our weakness. He aids us in our weakness. And we often want the Spirit to make us strong, right? We want God to make us strong. We concede our weakness, and we and we hope, and we come to God, and we say, God, we're weak, make us strong. And God's like, I'm not going to make you strong. I'm going to make you prevail in your weakness. That's what I'm going to do, right? That was Paul's wish. He had this thorn in his flesh, and he went to God. He's like, remove this thorn. Make, make me stronger. And God's like, no, I'm not going to make you stronger. I'm going to show you how strong I am in your weakness. And this is what the Spirit does. God promises that he will prevail in our weakness. We may be in hard circumstances, but the Spirit helps us bear up in our circumstances. 1 Corinthians 10.13 uses that phrase specifically. It says that when we are tempted by circumstances, God provides a way that we endure or literally stand up under the temptation or the circumstances. And so in this way, we remain dependent on God and not trust in ourselves. God says, I'm not necessarily going to change your circumstances, but I'm going to give you the strength to bear up under them. I'm not necessarily going to make you strong, but I'm going to give you strength in my spirit that you will persevere in your weakness. And in this way, we remain dependent on God and not trust in ourselves. And we are not even needy in our need. This is interesting how Paul phrases this. Not only in our need are we needy, but we're needy in our need to understand our need, if you follow along, right? Like, So look at this verse. Paul says it this way. For we do not know what to pray as we ought. So Paul says we pray out of need. So we need something. So we go to God in a needy way to pray. But we need the Spirit even to get our needs right, because in our need we pray without knowing what we ought to be praying. And so even our need is needy. And we're all aware of our deficiencies in prayers, right? And it's good news for us that Paul doesn't say, you do not know how to pray, but the Holy Spirit will help you. I, on the other hand, do know how to pray, and I don't need the Holy Spirit. Right? No, he says we. He includes himself. He says we don't know how to pray. This is the Apostle Paul saying, I don't know how to pray, just like you. Right? This is the Apostle Paul that prayed those amazing prayers in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 and Philippians. And, and he says he doesn't know how to pray properly. And this happens to Paul. This happens to the great prophets. I mentioned Jeremiah. Again, right? Jeremiah prayed, let, our, let your people hear and return. And you think, this, 
This has got to be God's will. Like Here's the prophet of Jeremiah praying for the people of Israel to hear God's voice and return to him. This has got to be a good prayer. And God says in Jeremiah 11.9, don't pray for them or petition for them. I'm not listening yet. Right? We know that God eventually does listen. But right now, Jeremiah's not understanding where and what God is doing. And he's praying counter to what God is actually accomplishing in the people of Israel. And so we don't really know how to pray. Paul says we don't even know how to pray as we ought. Even as we come to pray in our neediness, we need to know how to pray. And so the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And actually, just to back up there and not praying as we ought, and go back to James 4, uh, verse 3, right in where he said that, you know, you pray for the wrong motives. You're praying, you ask, and you don't receive because you pray for the wrong reasons. You're praying out of your own will or out of your own selfishness for your own gain, and so you don't know how to pray. And Paul's just reinforcing this here, that we don't know how to pray as we ought. So he goes on, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And this is encouraging and instructive. The the Holy Spirit, even when we don't know how to pray, will intercede for us without us even really knowing, without us even kind of being aware of it. You have an intercessor in Jesus, ever living to intercede for you, sitting at the right hand of God, Hebrews 7.25 says, right? Jesus left, he's gone to sit at the right hand of God. Jesus is always interceding for us in the throne room of God, and at the same time, he sent the Holy Spirit, and so we have the Holy Spirit dwelling here in us, John 14. Jesus taught that to his disciples that we saw last week. And so we have an intercessor on both ends of this relationship. Jesus in heaven interceding for us. The Holy Spirit here, Paul says, interceding in our prayers with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit joins with groanings. And it's such an interesting choice here that Paul chooses this. Groanings, groans. It's unarticulated. It's unarticulatable, yet understandable and known by our God. And so what Paul is saying here is there are things that we don't even know how to say. We could not even maybe even comprehend them if we heard them. They are just moans. They are just groans. They are just inarticulated needs and desires and petitions to God that come from the Holy Spirit. They're beyond our capacity of expression. And yet even though we cannot express, God does understand. Because he says, and he who searches the hearts, and that's God, is the one who searches hearts, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. The Father knows the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit knows the mind of the Father. We know that from 1 Corinthians 2.11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So this is great. We've got an intercessor in heaven, an intercessor with us. The intercessor, God knows the mind of the intercessor. The intercessor knows the mind of God. Right? This is going to work. This is, this is way beyond what we can communicate with God. This is going to actually work because the Spirit knows the mind of God, of the Father, and the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. And so the Spirit perfectly expresses our heart perfectly to the Father, and they are perfectly understood, even if they're just groanings to us, even if we don't know this is what's taking place. And so here's what's going on. We don't know the will of God, but the Spirit does. And we don't know what we should be praying for, or even what's always good for us, but the Spirit knows our hearts and what we need, and God knows the Spirit. And the Spirit and God can understand one another, even if we don't at first know. And so the Spirit intercedes for us in prayer and conforms our prayers to God's will. Now, the last time you prayed, did you have a concept that this is what was going on? 
right? Did you understand that this is what is taking place when we close our eyes to commune with the God of the universe? This is what's transpiring, God's, Paul says. And then verse 27 continues. He says, The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And that's where we're coming back to the will of God again. We cannot pray, and prayer has no context outside of the will of God. Whether it's what Jesus is teaching us in the Lord's Prayer, whether it's what James is talking about in terms of our wills or our desires compared to God, whether it's what Paul is talking about here in Romans, it's all according to the will of God. Right? Knowing God's will. This is what we're talking about, to know and do the will of God. This is how we experience God. All of this is helping us in our weakness. All of this interceding for us in our ignorance. It's all done by the Spirit according to the will of God, which is right where we want to be. And as Paul describes it, this almost sounds, because it's necessary out of our weakness, and as I've described it, it almost sounds like this is all happening without us knowing. And a lot of times it is, right? That the Spirit almost has to force Himself in there to correct our prayers because our prayers aren't the prayers that we ought to be praying. And so the Holy Spirit kind of steps in and takes over and says, yeah, you pray, that's good, I'm glad you're praying. I'm just going to do a little editing here along the way, right? And, And clean this up for you. And so we're so weak that we don't even realize we need the help. And he just does it. But this is what I want us to consider now. Now that we know this, right? Now that, now that the Holy Spirit has even right now unpacked this for us from his word. So now that you and I understand this, just consider this. Why don't we join him in this? Rather than struggle on trying to make our own prayers work, what if we took this instruction of Christ, what if we joined in the work of the Spirit and from the very start of our prayers just asked the Holy Spirit into our prayer life? What if we purposefully set our own will aside and invited the Holy Spirit to begin us in God's will? What if going into our prayers we consciously said, you know what, I I don't really want to have any opinion on this matter. These things that I think are so close to my heart, that I feel so strongly about, I want to put myself in a position where I can just hold on to them very loosely. And Blackaby used the example of George Mueller in his book, who said when he goes to pray, that was his first step. His first step when he went to God asking for something was that he determined in himself that he would place his heart in a position where he had basically no opinion on the matter, where he didn't have a preference which way things went. And so if we begin our prayer that way, then we can maybe avoid this whole conflict right from the beginning. Jesus has taught us that God's will comes first. James rebukes us to say that we ask incorrectly and that we should pray, if God wills it, then I will. And so let's just start there in our prayers. Let's just hold loosely to our own will and then listen for the Holy Spirit to reveal the will of God as we begin our prayer. And the question that I that I asked at the beginning was, how do we pray according to God's will? And the answer has become clear, right? We don't pray in our wisdom or in our strength, but we pray in our weakness. We, we embrace our weakness, so to speak. That's why it's the problem and the solution. When you go into pray, do you start out confessing your weakness, right? When we go to pray, do we acknowledge that we're weak? And that's okay because then the Spirit has that much more reign in our prayer. And as we pray, do we consciously consider ourselves as weak in comparison to God's strength? Do we consider ourselves needy compared to God's Spirit? 
and just start off releasing our will and searching for God's. And in this way, our prayers, in some part, begin to resemble the prayers even of Christ Jesus himself. He says he prays according to the will of God. Do you ever think of that? That if we were to pray this way, we would be praying the way Jesus prayed. Because in addition to the instruction and in addition to the intercessor that God has given us, we have the example of Jesus Christ. And this way of releasing his will and acknowledging his weakness is exactly how Jesus prayed. We see this weakness. We see this dependency. We see this setting aside even of the Son of Man's will in the life of Christ. just want to go back to Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 38 to 42. That scene where Jesus was praying with the disciples and they were falling asleep and their weakness was evident. But listen to Jesus. He says, Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? And he asked Peter, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Do you think Jesus is only talking about Peter there? He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And so we have preserved for us here in this gospel the example of Christ Jesus. Jesus the man. And and we like to think of Jesus the son of God. We like to think of Jesus the victor. We like to think of Jesus the miracle worker and the all-powerful son of God, part of the Trinity. But we often spend less time remembering that Jesus was also fully man. He was tempted in every way, Hebrews 4.15 says. He knew hungry. He knew thirst. He knew sorrow. He knew pain. He loved his life even as we love our own life. Verse 38 says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus the man knew weakness. He knew what he was going to. He knew what awaited him on the cross and he was overwhelmed with sorrow. He says the spirit is willing but the body is weak. He knew his own flesh on its own was too weak in itself to obey the will of God. Jesus even knew the temptation of conflicting wills. Jesus had his in the flesh, his own will in this matter. His own will was that the cup, if possible, pass from him, that it be taken away. But he said, not my will, but yours. Do you understand? There has to be two wills here. You can't say, but my will, but yours, if there's only one will. Jesus is praying in the reality of there being two wills, and one of those wills has to prevail. And Jesus says, not my will, Your will, the Father's will, the better will, the perfect will, the most God-glorifying, the most world-redeeming will, that will must prevail in my prayer and in my life. And and when I I think about that, it's, it's all just too mysterious and too marvelous to comprehend that even Jesus, the Son of God, but also the Son of Man, relied in his prayer on the strength of the Father. Jesus entered into his prayer, maybe the most important, certainly the most sorrowful prayer of his life, acknowledging his weakness, confessing his sorrow, but setting his own will aside to make way for the will of God. 
He says, this is all about your will. This is about my weakness and your will, and your will, Lord, be done. And so what Paul says in Romans 8 is that the spirit we have, the Holy Spirit that we have as believers, knows the mind and the will of the Father and can intercede so that our prayers become like Jesus' prayers. That we acknowledge our weakness, we acknowledge our sorrow, and we acknowledge our will, and that our will will conflict with the Father's. And so we set our will aside to be conformed to the will of the Father. That's what we want in our prayer life, right? That's what we want. So I just ask the question again, why don't we start there? Rather than the Holy Spirit having to kind of push us out of the way and bully us and, 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 and edit our prayers, why don't we just start with that Romans 8 idea and understanding? And, and when we go to pray, just say, we are weak and we don't know. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm not even going to bring my will into this prayer. You just bring me the Father's will. I'm going to hold lightly to the things that I think I want and listen instead for what the Father wants. I can't give you a better example. I can't give you a better reason to start adjusting and fine-tuning your prayer life. This is how we're taught, and this is the help we are given, and this is the example we are set by our Savior. To know the will of God in prayer, we have to confess our weakness. We have to set aside our own will and join with the Spirit to know the mind of God and let His will have His way in our life. That is how God speaks to us in prayer. We're not left alone in it. We're given an intercessor. right? We're not left without instruction. We're not left without example. God has given us all of these things so that we can know how to have the most intimate and loving and meaningful relationship with our Father. And so however you pray, I don't know. I, I don't know whether you know, you're one of the great prayers or one of the ones that are praying like Jeremiah and Paul sometimes. right? But whatever your prayer life is, however you're praying, I just encourage you this week, understand that you can go into prayer with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, with the help of the Holy Spirit, and make space for Him in your prayer. Start there. Start with the setting aside of our will and asking the Spirit to reveal to us the will of the Father for our life. Let's pray.